Chapter 20 of Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci. Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future by Cicely Hamilton. Chapter 20. With dawn, Theodore and a stolid companion, appointed by the headman, set out on their journey to the camp where Ada awaited them. They reached it only after weather-bound delays. As they towed their boat against a current that was almost too strong for their paddling, they were overtaken by a blinding snowstorm and escaped from it barely with their lives. They made fast their boat to the stump of a tree and groped through the smother to a shed near the river's edge. And there, for the better part of a day, they sheltered while the storm lasted. When it moderated and they pushed on through the dead village, a thick sheet of snow had obliterated the minor landmarks whereby Theodore had been wont to guide his way. It was close upon sunset on the third day of their journey, when they trudged into the hidden valley and the familiar tree clump came into sight, and dusk was thickening into moonless dark when Ada, hearing voices, ran forward with a scream of welcome. She sobbed and laughed incoherently as she clung round her husband's neck, hysterical, perhaps near insanity, through loneliness and the terror of loneliness. In the intensity of her relief at the ending of her ordeal, she forgot at first to be greatly disappointed because the world of Theodore's discovery was a world without a cinema or a charabanc. With her craving for company, it was sheer delight to know that in a few days more she would be in the midst of some two-score human beings, whatever their manner of living. It took time and explanation to make her understand that the desire for a charabanc in cinema must no longer be openly expressed. She stared uncomprehendingly when Theodore strove to make clear to her the religious as well as the practical idea that lay behind the prohibition. The need for caution was the more urgent since he had learned in the course of the return journey that his appointed companion was a fanatic in the new faith, a penitent who groaned to his offended deity, savagely pure-hearted in the cult of ignorance and savagely suspicious of the backslider. The religious temperament was something so far removed from Ada's experience that he found it impossible at a first hearing to convince her of the unknown danger of intolerant and distorted faith. His mention of a religious aspect to their new difficulties brought the vague rejoinder that her mother was a Baptist, but her aunt had been married in a Catholic church to an Irishman, and in the end he gave up his attempt at explanation and snapped out an order instead. You're to be careful how you talk to them. Until you get to know them, you'd better say nothing about what you used to do in the old times. Nothing at all. Do you hear? She stared, uncomprehending, but realized the order was an order. What she did understand and tremble at was the lack of provision for her coming ordeal of childbirth, and there was a burst of loud weeping and terrified protest when Theodore admitted, in answer to her questions, that he had found no trace of either hospitals, nurses, or doctors. For the time being, he soothed her with a hurried promise of seeking them further afield, pushing on to find them. They were sure to be found when she was settled in comfort and safety with other women to look after her. For the time being, he told himself, the soothing deceit was a necessity. She would understand later, see for herself what was possible, settle down and accept the inevitable. She was all eagerness to start, 
but it took two full days before the requisite number of journeys had been made to the river, their stores packed on an improvised sled, dragged heavily across the miles of frozen snow, and stowed in the flat-bottomed boat. Then, on the third day, Ada herself made the journey, helped along by the men who, when the ground was smooth enough, set her on the sled and dragged her. In spite of their help, she needed many halts for rest, and the distance between camp and river took most of the hours of daylight to accomplish. Hence, they sheltered for the night in a cottage not far from the river's bank, and with morning dropped downstream in the boat, paddling cautiously as they rounded each bend and always on their guard against the possibility of unfriendly meetings. The long desolation they passed through was a no-man's land. Any stray hunter, therefore, might deem himself at liberty to attack when he saw and seize what he found in their possession. But throughout the short day was neither sight nor sound of man, and by sunset the current, running swollen and rapidly, had brought them to their destined landing. After that came the mooring of the boat in the reeds and the hiding on the bank of the river of the stores they could not carry, then the long uphill tramp over snow in the gathering darkness, with Ada shivering, crying from weariness, and clinging to her husband's arm. And, at last, the glow of fires through tree trunks, with figures moving round them, shaggy men and unkempt women, their home. The unkempt women met their fellow not unkindly. They drew her to the fire and rubbed her frozen hands. Then, while one brought a bowl of steaming mess, another laid dry moss and heather in the bedplace of her unfinished dwelling. A protesting baby was wakened from its sleep and dandled for her comfort and inspection, its mother giving frank and loud voice details concerning the manner of its birth. There was a rough and good-natured attempt to raise her drooping spirits, and Ada, fed and warmed, brightened visibly, and responded to the click of tongues. This, at least, the new world had restored to her, the blessing of loud voices raised in chatter. All the same, on the second night of their new life, Theodore, awake in the darkness, heard her sniffing and swallowing her tears. What is it? he asked, and she clung to him miserably and wept her forebodings on his shoulder, not only forebodings of her coming ordeal in the absence of hospitals and doctors, but was this, in truth, to be the world? These people, so they told her, knew of no other existing, but what had become of all the towns? the trams, the shops, the life of the towns, her life. Where was it? It must be somewhere, a little way off. Where was it? He soothed her with difficulty, repeating his warnings on the danger of open regrets for the past and reminding her that tomorrow she also would be called on for the oath. I know, she whimpered. Of course I'll take an oath if I must, but you can't help thinking if you swear yourself black in the face. You can't help thinking. Whatever you think, he insisted, you mustn't say it to anyone. I know, she snuffled obediently. I shan't say nothing. But, oh God, oh God, aren't we ever going to be happy again? He knew what she was weeping for, shaking with miserable sobs, the evenings at the pictures, the little bits of machine-made finery, the petty products of devil's knowledge that had made up her daily life. The cry to her God was a prayer for the return of these things, and the hope of them had so far sustained her in peril, hardship, and loneliness. Pictures and finery had always been there, just a mile or two beyond the horizon, awaiting her enjoyment so soon as it was safe to reach them. 
Now, in her overpowering misery and darkness of soul, she was facing the dread possibility that they no longer awaited her, that the horizon was immeasurable, infinite. Guns and bombs and poisons, nobody wanted them, and she understood people making up their minds to do without them. But the other things, you couldn't go on living without the other things, shops and proper houses and railways. It can't be for always, she persisted. It can't be and was cheered by the sudden heat of his agreement, the sudden note of protest in his voice, the knowledge that he sympathized encouraged her, and with her head on his shoulder, sniffing but comforted, she began to plan out their deliverance. They must be somewhere, the people that live like they used to, keeping quiet, I'd say, till things get more settled. When things is settled, they'll get a move on and come along and find us, it stands to reason they can't be so very far off, because I remember the teacher telling us when we had our geography lesson that England's quite a small country, so they haven't got so very far to come. I expect an aeroplane will come first. He felt her thrill and expectation of the moment when she sighted the swiftly moving speck aloft, the bearer of deliverance drawing nigh. Wouldn't it be heavenly when they saw one at last, after all these awful months and years? In the war they were beastly, but now that the war was over, what had become of all the passenger planes and the airships? She was always looking out for one, always. Every morning when she came out of the hut, the first thing she did was to look up at the sky. And someday, one was bound to come. When things had settled down and got straight, it was bound to. But it never did, and in the end, she ceased to look for it. His attempts, they were many in the first few years, to break away from his world and his bondage of ignorance were made always with cunning precaution and subterfuge. Not even the pitiable need of his wife would have served as excuse for the backsliding which was search after the forbidden. To a fanaticism dominated by the masculine element, the pains of childbirth were once more an ordinance of God. And when, a few weeks before Ada's time of trial, Theodore absented himself from the camp for a night or two, he gave no one save Ada, warning of his journey, and later accounted for his absence by a plausible story of straying and a hunter's misfortunes. He had ceased, since he took up his dwelling with the tribe, to believe in the neighborhood of a civilization and being. All he hoped for was the neighborhood, not too distant, of men who had not acquiesced in ruin and put hope of recovery behind them. What he sought primarily was that aid and comfort in childbirth, for which his wife appealed to him with insistence that grew daily more terrified. What he sought fundamentally was escape from a people vowed to ignorance. The goal of his first journey was the town lying lower down the river, the forbidden city which had once bred pestilence and flies. He approached it deviously, keeping to the hills and avoiding districts he knew to be inhabited, hoping against hope that in spite of report, he might find some rebuilding of a civic existence and human life as he had known it. What he found when he came down from the foothills and trudged through its outskirts was the customary silent desolation, a desolation flooded and smelling of foul water, untenanted streets that were channels and backwaters, and others where the slime of years lay thick and scum bred rank vegetation. Silent streets and empty houses had long been familiar to him, but until that day he had not known how swiftly nature, left to herself, could take hold of them. The river and the life that sprang from it was overwhelming what man had deserted. 
Three winters of neglect in a low-lying, well-watered country had wrought havoc with the work of the farmer and the engineer. Streams which had been channeled and guided for centuries had already burst their way back to freedom. With every flooded winter, more banks were undermined, more channels silted up and shifted, and that which had been plowland, copse, or water meadow was relapsing into bog undrained. The valley above and below the town was a green swamp studded with reedy little pools, a refuge for the water bird where a man would set foot at his peril. Buildings here and there stood rotting, forlorn, and inaccessible. Barns, sheds, and farmhouses, their walls leaning drunkenly as foundations shifted in the mud. And in the town itself, as surely, if more slowly, the waters were taking possession. Towns had vanished, he knew vanished so completely that their very sites had been matter of dispute to antiquarians, but never till today had he visualized the process, the rising of layer on layer of mud, the sapping of foundations by water, the forces that made ruin and the forces that buried it, flood and frost and the persistent thrust of vegetation. As the waterlogged ground slid beneath them, rows of jerry-built houses were sagging and cracking to their fall. Here and there, one had crumbled and lay in a rubble heap, the water curdling at its base. How many lifetimes, he wondered, till the river had the best of it, and the houses where men had gone out and in were one and all of them a rubble heap, underwater and mud and rank greenery. He saw them, decades or centuries ahead, as a waste, a stretch of bogland where the river idled. Bogland now flooded, now drying and cracked in the sun and with broken green islets still thrusting through the swamp, broken green islets of moss-covered rock that underneath was brick and mortar. In time it might be, with more decades or centuries, the islets also would sink lower in the swamp, disappear. The process, unhindered, was certain as sunrise. The important little streets that humanity had built for its vanished needs and its vanished business would be absorbed into an indifferent wilderness, in all things sufficient to itself. The rigid, important little streets had been no more than an episode in the ceaseless life of the wilderness, an episode ending in failure, to be decently buried and forgotten. He plodded aimlessly through street after street that was fordable till the shell of a county infirmary mocked at Ada's hopes and recalled the first purpose of his journey, a gaunt, sodden building, the name yet visible on walls that sweated fungi and mold. Then, that he might leave nothing undone in the way of help and search, he trudged and waited to the lower outskirts of the town, where the roads lost themselves in grass and flooded water, and there stretched to the limit of his eyesight a dull winter landscape without sign of living care or habitation. In the end, having strained his eyes after that which was not, he turned to slink back to his own place, skirting alien territory where the sight of a stranger might mean an alarm and a manhunt, and sheltering at night where his fire might be hidden from the watcher. You haven't found nothing, Ada whimpered when he had told his necessary lies to the curious, and they were out of earshot in their hut. Her eyes had grown piteous when he stumbled in alone. She had dreamt in his absence of sudden and miraculous deliverance, following him in fancy through streets with tram lines, where dwelt women who wore corsets, also doctors, who, perhaps, when they knew the greatness of her need, would send a motor ambulance to fetch her to a bed with sheets on it. Nothing, he told her, almost roughly, 
afraid to show pity. No doctors, no houses fit to live in. Wherever I've been and as far as I could see, it's like this. End of chapter 20. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci.